I was falling apart because I literally thought all of Australia hated me. I couldn't see, I couldn't see that it was all fake. You know, I couldn't see that it was all fake. Like, and if you're not in, if you weren't inside my bubble, you would have thinking it would be a really fun time for me. But at the moment, at that point in time, I was reading the press, I was watching the TV, and I was like, "Fuck, they're just like demonizing me." I'm like, oh, "This is terrible." I'm Matt Levinson, and yep, that's right, I might have a story for you today. Dan Illich is probably the most relentlessly creative person I know. Comedian, actor, TV producer and showrunner, absolutely prolific and regularly viral on social media, podcaster, radio host. He's ridden and driven surges of controversy for decades now. His work stirred up front-page stories, press packs, howls of contempt from politicians, and passionate, committed audiences. What's most surprising to me when I think about what Dan's done is that despite all that, he's not an absolute household name in this country. And maybe that's because he's so difficult to pigeonhole. He's a rare mix of on-air talent, backroom producer, strategist. He's insightful, he's clever, creative and funny. He's also generous, thoughtful and humble. I've always loved his work and wanted to know more and that's what this podcast is about. Talking to great people, people you know, people who you love their work and you love who they are, but you probably should have asked all those nosy questions about what makes them tick much, much earlier and now it's just assumed knowledge. So this is about asking some of those questions. Dan, thank you so much for saying yes to doing this. Uh, good to be with you, Matt Levinson. And I should point out that it's not without trying. I've been trying to become a household name. <laughs> it's very difficult these days. It's, it's, it is outrageous to me. And I really uh, want to find out a bit more um, about, about that. But I want to start a bit further back with you. Um, a few years ago, there was an interview with you and your mum, which just really touched me at the time. And one of the things she said in it was that you were um, making everyone in the family laugh from about three or four years old. What was your childhood like? Uh, it was uh, great. I had a, I had a uh, you know, people talk about this all the time. I had a hashtag blessed childhood. Um, I grew up in Beecroft in the leafy suburbs of northwest Sydney. Um, I had a pretty, what I would consider a very loving and normal kind of um, childhood growing up, very went to a private school and had three brothers. Um, the thing that was kind of certainly different to my childhood compared to others was my dad was quadriplegic or is quadriplegic. So that was a little bit of a, not a challenge so much, but that just kind of made me think about things a different way. And dad himself is extremely facetious. And I think a lot of my comedy comes from dad being facetious because he could get away with a lot because of <laughs> who he was, his, his smarts, um, but also he was a, a, a smart-ass at every opportunity and so um, and had a way with words. So I kind of, um, you know, I think Dad was a really good influence in, on me in that time. But, um, yeah, no, my childhood was great. I, and I grew up doing, like, musical theatre in Western Sydney and uh, through – uh, many different organisations like ATYP out at Castle Hill and the Cumberland Gang Show out at 
Parramatta and um, and so my mates were all kind of creative suburban folks who I still I still many of those folks I grew up doing musical theatre with are still some of my best mates today. So um, yeah, I don't know if that says anything, but um, yeah. That's so okay. you got the jokes, you've got the musical kicking off right <laughs> there, you've got the comedy right at the start. You know, there's something else that really flows through your work, and there's sort of a sense of. Um, Look, service is too serious a word, but there's, you know, a purpose to a lot of what you've done um, that isn't necessarily natural, you know, fodder for a, for a comedian and a TV performer. Um, does some of that track back to your mum and to the relationship, you know, with her and, and with your family? I mean, was there a sort of a public service, uh, community service kind of um, thing that you grow up with? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. No, my mum, you know, gave up her life to look after my dad and, you know, raise four boys and she was always involved in St. Vincent de Paul and um, aged care services and folks like that. And she, you know, put me into Scouts in early age and I think Scouts is a really good example of where it's a community formed around service. So Scouts, we did a lot of service stuff as well um and that's um you know i think that's a really important group that a c- important community group that is kind of in all facets of society um rich and poor and right across the country that you know it's not really kind of people don't really talk about scouts much anymore but yeah but like in terms of a group that was you know where i did a lot of service and then you and i matt we did you know service together doing community radio in not only uh, broadcasting but also training folks and helping folks kind of come up through media and arts that way. So I think, yeah, uh, for a very long time, I always wanted to do things. I think participating is core to my values. So like being uh, a participant is kind of what I love doing. I want to be part of it. You know, I want to participate. I want to, I want to change stuff. I want to be part of stuff. And I think being part of stuff, service is a big part of that, you know, because you get to help others do stuff, help others build stuff, help others get stuff done. Um, and when I think about leadership, leadership is service. You know, when I'm running, a, you know, 40 people on a TV show, that's service. You're not, you're not the hero. You're, you're the servant running a show, try to make everyone's job easier. You know, this is the, that's the job. So yeah, you know, I think leadership and service are two things that kind of go um, hand in hand. I love that. Um, you know, maybe if I'd gone to scouts, things might've been different. I got put into boys brigade, which is kind of the Anglican version of that as oh, a yeah. little kid. Did and you ever hang out with Scott Morrison? I did not, but I got kicked <laughs> out um, within a very short period. I can't remember what, why that was or what it was about, but it is part of my family folklore that, you know, we were, that, that I, I didn't make it through boys brigade and maybe I'm really into hiking and maybe, you know, like would have been, we, we could have been good friends. One of my, one of my fondest memories of service with, with, with rovers was we set up a barbecue tent for, for a bikey ride um, for breakfast. So we were serving the common breakfast. <laughs> That's the kind of service we're talking about. <laughs> you know, you know, one thing I want to, I'm still sort of sticking way back early in, in your time. Um, I love the way that, when you look at your work, you've you've flitted between you know, absolute mainstream. You know, you did a stint on Australia's Funniest Home Videos, didn't you? Yeah, I I was doing um, up for it at the time on FBI, and I got I got the call to come and become an associate producer, a junior associate producer, at Funniest Home Videos. That was kind of my first job in you know, commercial show business, and uh, I was really perplexed as to or I had so much tension as to whether do I keep doing radio broadcasting for free on FBI which is 
which I loved, or do I go and chase the the big showbiz dream? And I did, and I really regret it. <laughs> I, so I spent like uh, yeah half a year on Funniest Home Videos. I often think of um, doing FBI as one of the best jobs I ever had. I, I loved oh. being there, and it's it's funny. It's this week. It's the you know anniversary nineteenth. Yeah, nineteenth yeah, anniversary is crazy. Um, yeah. But in a way, it was just such a free and liberating place, and you can see the whole bunch of talent have gone on from there. But you've also done. Uh, a stack of riskier stuff, a more subversive, satirical kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of it has been sort of based in this real sort of media savviness, like just getting the way media works and the way public conversations yeah. work in media. Were you watching a lot of TV as a kid? Were you kind of engaging in the media or was that something that came later? Oh, no, 100%. Yeah, I was – I growing up in the suburbs, there wasn't much to do, so I watched a lot of television. So it's like – I just kind of spent a lot of time watching TV, consuming that as a as the main media source and wanted to be, be part of that, wanting to participate in that. I would tape David Letterman at 12 o'clock and then come home at 4 o'clock to watch David Letterman uh, instead of cartoons. I would uh, come home from school, that is. <laughs> I would, when the internet first started, the first thing I did was go to David Letterman's website to find out how to get tickets to go see David Letterman. <laughs> And then I would like download every top 10 list David Letterman ever did. Um, and then that moved on to like a, uh, an obsession with The Daily Show. And, you know, even when I was younger, I, I really wanted to get on a current affair. I wanted to be like a youth reporter. I remember emailing, not emailing, writing a letter to a current affair asking, asking how to become a junior reporter. Did you hear like, anything back? No, never heard anything back like in like year seven or year eight. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was I'm gutted, gutted. Were any of your friends doing this? Or was this, this, not at, like, you know, it's pretty unusual. Not right? in my high school. Like, I don't think, you know, I was, well, I was so excited to, you know, try to get into a career in media. That was my main focus. And I remember the first time I felt close was in year 10 or year nine. I was walking the city to surf with my mum. So it would have been like 15 at the time. And I heard a familiar voice behind me. It was just as I was getting into Triple J. So I was like obsessed with Triple J. I was so obsessed with Triple J that I made my own ABC media pass. Uh, <laughs> because I like like I was like handcrafting like oh my dreams. I was manifesting as a kid. So I was so obsessed with Triple J that I heard this voice behind me and it was, I turned around this guy in a phantom outfit. Um, and he was talking and I and I couldn't like I didn't recognize him from his face, but from his voice. I said, excuse me, are you Dr. Carl? Oh, my God. <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, I am Dr. Carl. And I said, oh, I, I, I love you on Triple J. I love Triple J. I, you know, I love radio. He said, oh, here's my card. Um, why don't you email um, my my, uh, my assistant, Caroline, she can organise a few time to come in. I'm like, what? Yeah, 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 come on in and spend the day with me. So year nine, I emailed Caroline who happens to be now one of my best mates. She actually lives down the road from me now. Uh, I lived with her for a few years. She organised for me to go in with Carl for the day at the ABC. And Carl does this all the time with young people. Um, so email Dr Carl is what I'm saying if you're not a career media. Uh, and he will take people in the ABC. You spend the day with the ABC and he does all the radio stations in one day. So not only does he do Triple J in studio on a Thursday, but then he'll sit in a he'll sit in the TARDIS, which is a booth, that, like a Skype booth that connects to every other radio station in Australia. And he will sit there and do Be Dr. Carl on Triple J, on on Newcastle Radio, on Riverina Radio, on on uh, he would just spend the whole day. He's a doing machine, that. isn't he? Absolute machine, and and he'll take you for lunch, and and then you know he sit. And I remember at the time he was sitting down trying to work out, 
you know, his next book and, and he had an advertising proposal come to him from a big internet company at the time, which was brand new. And he's like, I don't know if I should take this because the internet's new and this could be really shit. And so you got to really see, you know, the day in the life of a media personality and the things I had to deal with. And so that was, that was from that moment I was hooked. I was like, oh my God, here I am in the ABC, <laughs> in Triple J, hanging out with one of my heroes. It was amazing. I love that generosity, you know, like oh. that is just... Um you know, if the media is is something that's really open to a lot of people who have family, who yeah. are in the media, who've grown up kind of with access. Um, for people who aren't, it can be a pretty intimidating foreign place, oh, right? Absolutely. Like I, I, I had no idea of how to access media until, you know, that moment. And then it wouldn't be some, some time later when that obsession for radio would lead me to, you know, a place like FBI where you got to meet a lot of people who were in that world. Um, I have so- to say, I mean, I grew up in the Blue Mountains, I, like barely even knew I was going to graduate high school, <laughs> let alone go to uni, had no idea what jobs were out there in the world, certainly not any of the jobs I've done as an adult. Yeah. Um, and that kind of entree is just, must have felt just like a door opening, <laughs> it right? Was, it was extraordinary, yeah. As a kid, it was one of the most exciting Days of my life. Another exciting time, which another exciting moment around that time was when I was like a year younger, and just so so simple. Like I was part of this show called the Cumberland Gang Show. Scouts guide, guides put it on, and I got a call from the producer asking me if I'd like to join the production team because he saw how enthusiastic I was, and that was like I was so overjoyed to become like a producer and director of this show as a kid, as a kid, um, to start bossing people around and making fun stuff. So. I don't know. Yeah, just those moments are so special. Like, I, yeah, they fill me with joy. That Cumberland Gang show, I mean, it, I think there's so much history to that. Um, and I'd love, I mean, f- first thing, I'd love to go into every single project that you've done. <laughs> and I actually made a timeline of your kind of various outputs over the last 20 years. And it is a really long list, which I can share with anyone who wants to. Um, put, it, put it on the show notes. <laughs> it, it is insane the amount of stuff you've you've done. I mean, you, you do... Um, you have an output every year, which a lot of people would trade an entire career off. Um, but getting to the Cumberland gang, you know, a lot of your work, I mean, we've just been talking about Dr. Carl, we've been talking about ACA and kind of serious stuff, science and news and current affairs, but there's this kind of, with a lot of your work, there's, I said at the start, a madcap zany kind of aspect to some of your work. You're, um, you're not afraid to do really dumb stuff at times around some of this stuff. Does that, some of that come up from coming up in musicals and coming oh. up in shows and performance and getting on a stage? Undoubtedly. Like, like doing youth musical theatre where you're allowed to kind of do anything you want, it, it really turned me into a gigantic ham. And so as someone who grew up in like Western suburbs, like I didn't know things like ATYP existed. I didn't know, you know, I could go and join Bell Shakespeare and go to NIDA summer courses. That stuff for me was like, that's that's not for me. I can't do that. And many of my contemporaries have done that and, you know, they've got much more serious careers in, in comedy and, and performance. But my where I cut my teeth was being an absolute ham on stages in, in Parramatta and Castle Hill, yeah. You went off to Macquarie Uni and joined the drama club there. It seems oh, yeah. like you kind of found your people there in a way. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean, Dramac was a core part of my um, uni life. Like I kind of built my uni life around Dramac, um, the Drama Society at Macquarie University. And it was 
so many of my good friends and, and many contemporary performers came from there. So one of the first kind of shows I did was a show called The Beatification of Newt Burton and the Great Viagra Robbery as part of Dramac. And that show has was written, produced by Chris McDonald. And Chris McDonald now runs Buckstock Productions and Laughingstock, one of the biggest talent agencies in Australia. Um, other people I did that show with was with Sammy J. Ryder, James Pender, was with Heath Franklin, um, uh, and uh, Jess Cook, renowned Sydney arts uh, person. Becky Gage, Heath Franklin's wife, also did it. Just an incredible uh, group of folks who have now kind of infiltrated their way throughout Sydney arts and culture. Um, and then that show led us to doing that at the Big Laugh Festival in Parramatta, at the Big Laugh Festival, where we met John Pinder. John Pinder is incredible. Um, what's the right word? Empresario. He was... Someone who I admire so greatly, um, he pulled together people and made ideas and, and people collide together. And he could see the he could see talent in something. He could see want in a producer and put those two together and create something else. Um, his talent for that was uh, was incredible. He started the the Last Laugh Festival in in in. Um, the Last Life Comedy Club in the Athenaeum in Melbourne. He started the Big Laugh Festival in Sydney. He started the the, the biggest, the world's biggest laugh festival on Cockatoo Island, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. The Sydney Comedy Festival, which he, you know, it's a long story there, but he he started that as well, as well as the Melbourne Comedy Festival. He was kind of guy that just put people together. So he put our show um, in to brought it to the attention of Nick Murray, producer, a TV producer, um, and and he. He said, hey, you should keep an eye on these folks. And then we had a meeting with Nick Murray and, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was doing a best of um, best of university review show. So we, we did that. We called it The Third Degree. We found all of Sydney's best writers and performers from all of the uh, university reviews in Sydney, put them together, and we put on this Third Degree show. And we toured that to Melbourne and Nick Murray supported it and then, you know, Working Dog saw it and, and we ended up working with um, Glenn Robbins and Nick Murray to turn that show into a television show. And from that third degree show, incredible names were in that show, not only um, Heath and myself um, but uh, folks like uh, Felicity Ward was in it. Um, that first third degree show had uh, had Claudia Doherty in it and, Charlie Garber, like it's amazing, right? Like incredible, like absolutely incredible. Benedict Hardy was in it as well, and Benedict is now like a superstar up and up and up in the Gold Coast, shooting like a Hollywood film. So like, yeah, no, really fascinating kind of period to kind of grow up and uh, as a university student making this kind of stuff with uni. And that was your first kind of entree into TV, right? That that led to Ronnie Johns. Didn't yeah, it? that led to Ronnie Johns. So you know we. From the third degree, and Glenn Robbins and Nick Murray took it to Channel Ten and said, "Hey, these these young folks have got something. What do you reckon?" And Channel Ten gave us a little bit of money to develop it, and then we 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 just spent we got the privilege of sitting in a room for a month writing jokes, and then we went to a uh, like a oh, an empty hall in Rushcutters Bay and performed it for these Channel Ten executives, and they were losing their shit, having a good time. Like as part of our development, you know, Tim Minchin was writing with us, you know, and he wow. was doing music with us. Um, so Tim, so like it was so wild, yeah, like totally, you know. So it was a very small group of like, of incredible folks. You know, Tim, of course, was too good for us and just kind of went off and did his own thing, sure, which he should have. It's done, a real star, right? Which he really and he really you know backed himself in, and he was so ultra talented. Um, so just quite a very special time, you know, sitting in that room. 
uh, amongst the tinkering yachts in like this empty hall in Rushcutters Bay performing dumb sketches to a bunch of TV executives, uh, not filming it, just laugh like, like it was us performing in front of six people. It was amazing. You've been involved in a, a bunch of those kind of moments where there's like, um, you know, real investment in talent. You know, I think there's Ronnie John's Half Hour, of course. Yeah. There's um, Hungry Beast, which was just such a talent juggernaut. Tonightly. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's others. Um, how important is it? to give some because you know some of those shows haven't necessarily they've they've been great shows they've been really well received but they've also been just talent machines that have just sent this just wave of talent surging out into a million other projects how important are those kind of those spaces they're they're very important for experimentation they're very important for making mistakes they're very important for um galvanizing values they're very important for connections Um, and connections and building trust among a team of folks like we did with Hungry Beast uh, is immeasurable. Like, you know, Hungry Beast was 12 years ago now and I feel like 12 years on, I can call up, well, 15 years on nearly, I can call up anyone from that team and I'll know exactly what they can do and I know how much I can trust them to deliver on something. And uh, they're some of my best mates um, and it's it was a really hard time, Hungry Beast. Like it was a very difficult time to kind of uh, fight and jostle for ideas and space and um, and particularly in that first season until we kind of shake a few, um, uh, a few cobwebs off to kind of get going. But yeah, as uh, by the time we finished season three, we were like a real crack team, you know. And um, uh, so many folks in that team, in particular, I have, I have like unlimited trust for because um, they're just incredible folks. And we've all been it's like going to war together. We've all we've got this camaraderie, and we can share that across across platforms. So you know what I what I loved about it. Um, I mean, I loved the show and I loved how adventurous it was. Um, but I think it's that point about those people going off into a bunch. I, I started um, this conversation with mentioning that interview with you and your mum. And Monique Shafter, you know, having been part of that has, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure what she's up to right now, but she was for a period of time doing just these incredible interviews for 7.30 regularly, quite moving, touching, like quite outside of the box of normal current affairs journalism. I've, I I can't help but think that, I mean, obviously there's a talent, there's a um, capacity for telling stories, but there's also that kind of giving the space to learn how to tell stories in a different way that you wouldn't learn in a typical newsroom. Totally. Like often it was just like take a camera and go do it, you know, and see what you come up with. So it was baptism of fire. And as a result, we did stuff differently and it looked differently. It smelt differently and the stories were told differently. And when, and often if you're, if you're coming up through traditional media channels, a show looks like a show, a show smells like a show, um, and it's very staid and kind of tried and true. But when you're coming up through something like Hungry Beast, you get the, you're afforded the ability to experiment and do things in a different way. Um, Mon and I actually went to a anti-abortion protest uh, together in Surrey Hills, and it was around Easter time, so there's this gigantic um, right very 
I can say this is a Catholic, a very right-wing Catholic kind of presence there. And so we got to kind of infiltrate that and interview folks from that and and as well as interview folks who were protesting the protest, um, which of the, which there was two. It was this incredible evening on the streets of Surrey Hills where we're outside this uh, um, abortion facility. Um, and it was uh, extraordinary making that together. Um, and it it when I went to television, it was this incredible story um, that that you just wouldn't see the characters the way Mon and I told it. You just wouldn't see the the shots and the vision the way we shot it. It just looked and it was just completely different. And likewise, shows like um, You Can't Ask That had a very uh, simple origin in, in Hungry Beast. So You Can't Ask That is effectively a Vox Box segment that Aaron and Kirk did inside Hungry Beast, which has now spun out to its own worldwide success of a TV show. It's such a gorgeous show as well, right? Like it unlocks these just so powerful and moving conversations with such a simple premise. Yeah, and that's that's testament to Aaron and Kirk. Like Kirk Kirk is such an incredible interviewer. Like he, he goes the extra mile to kind of ask the weird questions or put people in an uncomfortable position or to to build rapport with someone who's only just met to get them to be vulnerable and that's and willingly and that's an amazing skill and Kirk's just an incredible person for doing that over the last six months you know um borders have shut down and uh and yet tourism hasn't returned and so (laughs) all of a sudden we're hearing so where the bloody hell are you again um (laughs) that that old tourism australia ad is popping up all over the place and and only partially ironically um, when you saw that ad in 2006, you had an almost immediate reaction. I mean, I think you turned around a, a, a spoof video within only a matter of a couple of weeks. Yeah. What hit you about it? Okay, so Fran Bailey is someone that's been back in the news because she recently came out to complain that Scott Morrison was an awful person and should never become Prime Minister. At the time, she was Tourism Minister. Um back in 2006 when that ad came out. So this ad came out, the Where the Bloody Hell Are You ad came out, and it was an okay ad. It was pretty good. The government was making such a big deal about it because it was so cheeky because it had the word bloody in it. And the thing is, when you have swearing in your ad, it gets banned. And it got banned in every English-speaking market. So it got banned in Singapore, UK. It got banned in some states of the United States. And it got banned in Canada, not because of swearing it got banned in Canada because I had this shot of unbranded beer because there's a buy there's a law in broadcasting in Canada is that if you put a beer on CV it has to be branded um so it's ridiculous so this ad kind of got banned everywhere and and you and I both know that there can be strategy in making an ad to get banned right of course you know you've done this before I've I've done it before but a tourism ad isn't really that kind of ad right yeah and the I and you know the the thing is like they were marketing this ad as a banned ad in Australia. And they'll say, how cool is this ad? It's being banned. Everyone's talking about an ad that's been banned. Go to the website to watch the banned ad. But I was so annoyed that that the only people that were really watching this ad were Australians who wanted to see the banned ad. And it's like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like you're, you're like advertising to Australia this banned ad. I don't think anyone overseas is watching this banned ad. Um, so I made an ad that would be seen by um, people overseas. So I made this kind of parody of of that ad and it had, you know, all the not-so-nice things about Australia all crammed into the ad. Um, uh, and it was extremely facetious. It was 
2000, 2006. I was a young person living in my share house in Balmain and I got everyone I knew in, into it, um, in it to, to make it. And it got like a million hits in, it got in, in a week it got like 45,000 hits in, 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 in a few weeks it got like a million and a half hits. It you know, crazy. talking about those bad things, there's a Cronulla riots, there's, you know, Villa Wood and refugees there. Yeah, we even had a dingo eating a baby joke in there, which I'm not so proud of now. But, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff in there about refugees, um, yeah, Cronulla rights, as you said, and it was just kind of really potent at the time because Australia wasn't necessarily the proudest place to live um, back in 2006. It was John Howard was really not a great – it wasn't a great vibe under John Howard. Um, you, I didn't feel proud being Australian. And so – um, this ad kind of got out there and it, it did enormous, enormous traffic. This is like 2006 was like beginning of YouTube. It was the first thing that I ever put on YouTube. Uh, and I also, you know, it was back in the day, Matt, when you wanted to get something seen, you had to make a .mpg or a .windows media file and email it to 200 of your friends. And how you saw videos was someone would forward it to you. So that, I did that as well. So I got this cease and desist letter from um, uh, from Clayton's, I think it was at the time. Uh, acting for Tourism Australia. For tour- I mean, I read Scott Morrison's quote at the time. He said, the trouble with this spoof is it's just not very funny. <laughs> This Scott Morrison comment on it. Well, he was the he was the <laughs> MD or whatever of Tourism Australia. I didn't Australia. even know that. That's fantastic. Oh yeah, great. I did. I haven't. It's been a while. like I'm trying. When you're talking to me, I am like scraping my brain for information. It's like so long ago. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. So so the ad basically looked and smelled exactly like their ad, and in fact, the music was very similar. Uh, and they sent a cease and desist saying you're using the same music, and I said, uh, actually, I'm not. Um, the only similarity between my version of the song and your version of the song is the word nah. Uh, I think it was like nah, 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 nah. So I said, uh, I have taken the offending version down, but I've replaced it with a few other versions. I put up a do whistle, a do version, a do do do, a whistle version, and a crazy frog remix version. Um, so it's no longer uh, remotely similar to yours. <laughs> I never heard from that again. And <laughs> so it was just this wonderful moment where I was like, "Yeah, fuck you, government," um, and it was great. And at the time, I was doing Ronnie John's, but I had the the great Nick Murray in my corner, who was like, "Oh, this is great, Dan. This is fantastic." Oh, you definitely tell them to fuck off and I was like great I will yeah so it was really wonderful to have like a older person who knew copyright law behind me to Could go back yeah, you in yeah. some way <laughs> and so yeah that was that was extraordinary yeah but it was a great like that was the a, a bit of an aha moment for me when it came to satire and once again I think participating is kind of the vibe there like I wanted to have a, an opinion I wanted to share my opinion on this I wanted to participate in this conversation because the government was taking far too much credit for something that was terrible. Had you done anything like, I mean, when you were in high school, you were making fake ABC or fake Triple J <laughs> passes or whatever, um, but had you done anything like this before where you'd made a spoof of something? No, I mean, I've made I made plenty of spoofs and I made like kind of little videos that went on the website called ifilm.com back in the day, but nothing really like this that was pointed at the government. Like I, I, ne- I hadn't really decided to make something and put it out in order to literally go on the offence. Um, Did it surprise you, the, the rea- reactions? Yeah. Those million views? Yeah, totally, yeah. It was. It, was, it blew my mind. And um, it got taken down. Um, by YouTube? I think, I think by me. I think by me at some point because it, 
I needed to put the other versions up. Um, so I lost those views and kind of lost that account or whatever I put it up. But, uh, but you know, it's just amazing, like, um, that whole experience. Um, that was a, that was the aha moment because I did press, you know, I had a, a photographer come out to my house and take photos of me in my bedroom, which was, you know, three times smaller than this. Um, and, yeah, just uh, – uh, yeah, very very surprising moment. Like at that point, I'd been on TV for a whole season, and I hadn't had any of that kind of attention. Um, and it was like, oh right, well this is like this is something that people really enjoy, and you can actually say something and participate in democracy at the same time. And around that time, that's when I first met uh, Nick Moratus from Get Up, and um, he reached out to say, hey, we saw that video, let's have a conversation. I'm like, who are these Get Up people? Get that out. must have been right at the start, right? It was, yeah, 06. So um, I was like, all right, yeah, I'll have a conversation with GetUp about something. Um, it's you- funny, there are so many, there have been so many CEOs of GetUp that are, you know, total alpha alpha males, you know, like really mm. kind of like back themselves and, and do outrageous kind of, you know, somewhat courageous things. Nick is a really different kind of person. He's a really sweet and thoughtful person. Yeah, and very gentle soul. Yeah. yeah, yeah, lovely, just a lovely fellow. And it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know what this organisation is, but I kind of like the idea that Nick's telling me about them, you know, in a, in a pub. Um, and so I had that in the back of my head when I did my next big viral thing, which was David Hicks's Cribs. Um, so I made this video about David Hicks, um, with Get Up, this is the first thing I did with them, and it was me <laughs> pretending to be in Guantanamo Bay um, as David Hicks uh, and <laughs> showing showing off my crib, MTV's Cribs. It was an MTV's Cribs parody. And how that came about was I was flying back from um, LA and I was sitting next to Major Michael Murray and I recognised him from um, Enough Rope and I was like, excuse me, are you, are you David Hicks's lawyer? He's like, yeah, I sure am. And I'm like, great. And I just started talking. He just started telling me all about David Hicks and, you know, what he was going through. And um, and I kind of whipped out my laptop at the time. I think it was an iBook G3. And I was showing him some clips that I was making. And he's like, you should do something for us. And I'm like, should I? Okay, let me think about it. All right, great. So then we came up with that and they loved it. So we raised, a, well, that was the first thing I did with Get Up. And that was the first big kind of viral hit that I, I did for them. If you um, if you haven't seen that, Google it. It's uh, it's totally fantastic I, I love the the bit where you're like you're sitting inside this container and you're like uh you know this is it <laughs> yeah yeah that's it yeah, yeah yeah um you've had a stack of of kind of similar moments in a way um since then the um the free view video that you did with mark Fennell. oh yeah um when Gina Reinhardt was kind of threatening to take over um, the Sydney Morning Herald and oh, use yeah. that front page of of the paper. Oh, good memory. Um, wow. You know, the Border Force kind of rip off when... Yeah, we did the, the Sydney Mining Herald, yeah. Um, one, one thing that really sort of touched me, I think, was it, back in 2014 when Razor Barati was killed on Manus Island. Um, it, was, it was just an... It was an intense moment, um, one of the most kind of moving moments I've been part of in my life in a way, um, the reaction and the kind of surge of just emotion from the Australian community after that happened. Yeah. Um, I was involved, you know, working at Get Up at the time um, with vigils and activism around it. What you did was work on a video uh, and a, a, like a song with actually with Tim, my brother, 
Um, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. remember you turned that around incredibly fast. I'm not exactly sure how it came about, but I, I was watching it back yesterday and just it just brought um, me back immediately to that moment. That That's a similar kind of response in a way. It's like this bad thing has happened in the world. You're reacting to it and you're turning something around incredibly fast. Um, I can see I'm scraping the, you know, the depths of your memory on this at the moment, but how much is that kind of... In a way, the way that you'd been working with with things like that, you know, SMH front page, that kind of thing, were like these. You know what? They're they're hilarious and funny. How how different is it when you're reacting to something and turning in something that's deep and intense and moving? Yeah, that was uh, that was a real challenge for me because, um, you know, Tim, your brother, Earth Boy like a you know hero of mine growing up reached out and said hey do you want to do this and I'm like yeah yeah of course yeah whatever whatever you want sir yes sir so it was there was no budget or anything so I kind of had to use a whole bunch of stolen footage of um, recruitment ads and and um, and vision from movies and things like that to kind of create this story about um, boat arrivals and and detentions and stuff like that and it was it was e- like easy for me to do like because I had the skills and I just kind of sat in my in my living room cutting it together and then just um, and then just kind of showed Tim and he really liked it. So, yeah, I, I don't mind the serious stuff. I don't, you know, of course I don't mind doing um, and, I, and I've done plenty of that and, like, I've built, I've built serious work for brands and clients and, you know, other folks. Um, uh, and the, the stuff that gets me excited is the comedy stuff. So if I can, if I can create a bit of work that highlights uh, an issue in a different uh, funny and humanizing way, then that, that gets me excited. So 2019, 2018, I went to Manus Island and I made some work for the, the Doha debates group, which was an interview with Beiriz Bachani. I've got Beiriz's book up here. That's an incredible read. Um, yeah. And uh, let me, let me get it to you. I'll show it to you. You know, that was one of those books that I had heard about, I knew about, and I thought was going to be disappointing to read, and I was blown away by it. You uh, know, it, absolutely incredible. And one of the f- interesting things about it is that it's really funny. There's some really totally. funny. There's some really funny bits in it. Um, and I can tell you the exact date I got deported off Manus Island because Beirut wrote in my book. Um, on the front page. <laughs> wow. Okay. 26th of the 1st, 19, 2019. What a day to be doing that, right? Australia Day, yeah. yeah. So uh, I not only made this great piece, an interview with Beirut on Manus Island, but I also made a sketch um, with other refugees uh, on Manus Island. Uh, basically another Where the Bloody Hell Are You parody, but based on Manus Island. And um, I got... I put that out and that got a bunch of media attention and it was just great to be able to highlight our what we were doing in offshore detention in a funny way and in a humanising way to humanise these folks who've been demonised by Australian media for so long. And many of those blokes now are uh, scattered to the wind all over the world. Um, Abdul Abziz is in Switzerland. He's like a, a, a human rights award winner. Um, uh, Omar is in... Omar is in the USA um, and, a whole, yeah, just a whole bunch of folks are all over the place. So, yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. 
I started on FBI radio about, I think it was about 2005. So it must've been, um, you know, at that point, I think you were already seen as a bit of a legend around the station, you know, like for all the kind of reasons that I'm, you know, that I've been talking about, a bunch of us were, you know, like really just kind of working things out and seemed like you just kind of knew how to make things happen. Reporting on the Democratic Convention in the US for Fairfax. <laughs> oh, um, good memory. Huh? And then, uh, then came the big thing that I, I reckon if nothing else should have, you know, cemented your role, your household name status on the Australian population. And that's that Beaconsfield um, production that you did. Um, I mean, it was, it dominated the media for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, when did you get the idea? Uh, so I was at the Logies when all that was happening in 2006 and we were kind of getting news of what was happening and uh, it might've been the, the, two days before the Logies because there was no one at the Logies, like the big big kind of celebrity names. And so that always stuck in my back of my head as a real big moment in Australian media. And, of course, it was that the Beakersville mine disaster really took over Australian media for quite a few weeks. Um, endless, endless, uh, endless coverage, war-to-war coverage on, on 7 and 9 um, and lesser extent the other networks. And it struck me as odd because you had these – Two organisations, seven and nine, trying to outdo each other for coverage of this event. And one network would do something and the other network would copy it. Like one network would have a benefit concert in Beaconsfield in, in northwestern Tasmania and the other network decided they would do the same thing like a few days later. And it, it, it was really sick and obtuse to me like to see this level of kind of coverage over this disaster. Um and I had the name of the musical, which at the time was Beaconsfield, a musical in A-flat minor, and I had it written on a card and I had it stuck on the living room wall in my house in Balmain at the time, my share house. And then I wrote out a bunch of ideas for sketches on cards and stuck them on the wall. Um, and and it was then sometime in 2006 or 2007, 2008 that I decided to collect all those cards and fly to Launceston and sit in the pub in Beaconsfield and write this write this show up. So I basically wrote a sketch comedy show about the media exploitation of a small town uh, and uh, then interviewed folks around Beaconsfield and chatted to miners and chatted to kind of the mine conditions they, they had to live with, work with and kind of put weaved all those those stories into the, the musical and read this great book, um, which was like the definitive kind of history of the of the disaster, um, and kind of weaved some of those stories in there as well, and then kind of had this show ready to kind of go, and I decided to put it on the, at the Melbourne Fringe, and the thing is, we put it on, we had great people, so some of the folks in it include people like Toby Trusslove, uh, Amanda Buckley, and Kate McLennan was in it. She played one of the miners, um, and the musical. Theatre director, the musical director was Nigel O'Brien, who's like this highly decorated musical director in in Australian musical theatre. He wrote the music for it. And one thing we didn't have about a week out was ticket sales. No one was buying tickets to Beaconsfield, the musical in A-flat minor, at the Butterfly Club in South Melbourne at the time, which was this tiny room. It fit about 30 people in it. It was like it was like being in a classroom or something. And so I decided to, you know, find out ways to kind of get some publicity for it. So I 
I'd, I'd been trying for weeks in the Melbourne press, but no one was biting. No one wanted a piece of it. So I, I reached out to the, I think the Launceston Examiner, uh, or the, the Tasmanian, the Examiner in Tassie, and they bit. They were like, "What the hell is this? What are you doing? Why are you doing it?" And then they, and then they were really like gunning me about it, about it. So I was being as facetious as I could, and like I put all the jokes I had. <laughs> <laughs> in the show, like into this conversation with this journalist from the Launceston Examiner. And the Examiner is a Fairfax publication and so they share a copy all around Australia and I got a phone call from Chris McDonald, my friend who I mentioned before, at 11 o'clock at night um, on the day it kind of hit the, the age. He said, um, he said, oh, Dern, I just um, I was listening to Tony Delroy's What the Papers Say on 774 and um, you're on the front page of The Age tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you, you, you can have a big day tomorrow. I'm like, okay, great. So at the time, I previous to that moment, I, would, I, was, I was a video journalist at Fairfax, so I kind of knew how press conferences worked, how the media worked, and like I'd been inside those newsrooms, so I kind of seen the ferociousness of what a front page story could mean for the people involved in it. So... I called all the cast. I called my agent, <coughs> and I took down my I took down my website, oh, my personal details off my website, and the time put my agents up, uh, and they could funnel all the all the conversations, uh, and and I let all the cast know that this was going to happen, uh, and then at six o'clock the, the phone calls started, and it was like the first phone call was, was is six a.m. right? Yeah, six a.m. Yeah, six a.m. the next day the phone call started because what people don't understand is like if you're in broadcast media, where you figure out what you're going to talk about for the day is in the print media. So regardless of what's trending on Twitter or or anything, whatever's on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun, the Age, or SMH is going to be talked about the next day on radio. That's how it works. So the to set the agenda, you just got to hit that front page, and that's what I that's what, that's what I had done. I'd hit the front page of the Age, and so everyone wanted to talk. Ever everyone wanted to talk talk to me about it and wanted to turn me into like the greatest villain in Australian media, uh, and they did. And it was for, for about a week I was the most hated man in Australian media. Um, it was everywhere. It was everywhere and we hadn't even put the show on yet. No one had seen the show. We hadn't even finished rehearsing the show. Um, so I had to hold a press conference about four days before the show opened at at the at the venue. We, we performed the one song that we'd rehearsed uh, and then I answered questions in front of this gigantic press pack and I was rude and facetious and uh, I don't know, I certainly wouldn't handle, I, you know when you just don't, when you're young, you don't know, <laughs> you don't know what to do. So I was just doing it because I just thought, well, this is an opportunity to make jokes and be as funny as possible and that's what I did. But it really I was the centre of a media storm for about a week and a half and it really drained my energy. It really drained my mental capacity um, and it, it was exa- like extremely exhausting, not only for me but for people in the show, for people around me. Um, and it was... It was a really hard experience and I learned a lot from that experience and I've since helped a lot of people. When I see people who I know into that that area, I just gently give them a call or, or drop them a line and say, hey, look, I have experience in dealing with this if you want to talk to anyone about it because there's nothing there's no there's no training course you can do for that there's only going yeah. through it. When you're like 25 and you're like the most hated man in, in Australia for two weeks, 
you have to you have to make it up as you go. No one's there to help you. The best phone call I got was from James Carlton. Um, and uh, after all the exhausting phone calls I had, after all talking to all the shock jocks, talking to all the breakfast shows about what a terrible person I was, James Carlton called. Richard Carlton, famous Australian journalist, was at the Beaconsfield uh, mine disaster. During a press conference, he had a heart attack and died. And I had written a song uh, called The Carlton Cardiac. And it was ostensibly all the media complaining that James Carlton had secured the exclusive rights to the interview with the miners. And so all the media were complaining privately and they were bitching about James Car- uh, Richard Carlton, which they were uh, on the ground because Richard Carlton at the time was a huge name in Australian broadcasting and he, he, got, he got the exclusive. And so everyone was complaining um, privately. And then when he died, everyone was celebrating him extremely publicly <laughs> within the space of a few hours. And that kind of hypocrisy um, really made me laugh. And so we wrote this song called The Carlton Cardiac. Um, and it, in the space of the song, you have the journalist complaining, he dies, and you have the journalist celebrating his life. And Richard Carlton um, called me up. Or James Carlton. Oh, sorry, uh, James Carlton called me up, Richard's son, to say, Dan, I want you to know our family isn't angry at you. No one... No one I know is angry at you. This is my dad would have loved this song, um, and you've got our you've got our full support, you know. And so, I, at, that, at the time, that phone call made the made the world to me was the world to me because I was falling apart because I literally thought all of Australia hated me. I couldn't see I couldn't see that it was all fake. You know, I couldn't see that it was all fake. Like. And if you're not in, if you weren't inside my bubble, you would have thinking it would be a really fun time for me. But at the moment, at that point in time, I was reading the press, I was watching the TV, and I was like, "Fuck, they're just like demonising me." I'm like, "Like this is terrible." You know, I've often just through my work, I've I've been in those moments. I would not say any moments as intense as that, um, but moments that give me a taste of what it's like um, working for you know politicians and the like. And the few moments where I've actually been named, where I've been (laughs) on the front page story, you know, personally named or whatever, there's something that is really, really intense about that in in a really kind of, um, I don't know, like uh, subjective way that you you can't really predict how you're going to react to. I often feel like I skate a bit close to the edge and have a bit of an appetite for risk in my work. Um, But compared to you, I'm like, you know, in six lanes of traffic, in like a people movie, you know. Sure. Um, is, you know, you said earlier Nick Murray, you know, giving you a bit of support when you did that Tourism mm. Australia ad, getting the call from James Carlton about this um, production. Are those are those the, the things that help you get through it? I, I don't know. Like hearing that story, that pressure would be so intense. I, I don't know how I'd handle it. What, what gets you through it? Uh, th- those moments really did help, yeah. I mean, uh, the Tourism Australia one, I didn't worry too much about, um, but this this particular moment with James was extremely helpful. And I think because of that that generous phone call, because he was so generous, like the phone call I had earlier that day or two days before was with Guy Barnett, senator, Tasmanian senator. And he said, if you come down here and put your show here, you're going to be dragged through the streets at the end of a ute. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is a, thank you, Senator. Like, fuck you very much. Like, and I quoted that 
in the newspaper and he was going to sue Fairfax for defamation. And I said, well, I, I, got, I mean, I don't have a rec- record of the phone call, but I can tell you that's what he said because it's affected me so deeply. So, like, you know, it's just one of those things where um, I remember that moment from James and when I can – if I can be that moment for somebody else, um, that's why I'll reach out to somebody to, you know, to say, hey, you know, like what you're going through, let me know if I can help because I've, you know, been through something similar. So, yeah, those, those moments are incredible. I said before, I've got this really long list of all the stuff you've been involved in and I've probably missed a stack of stuff um, and I keep on seeing things that I that I hadn't picked up before. Um, so this this interview like could go for a lot longer if I wanted to go in blow by blow. But just in the last year or two, you've knocked out this amazing um, show with Ray Martin um, at home um, together. Uh, you've... Going into the UN climate talks, run a, just a massive crowdfunding campaign to put billboards uh, in just these hugely prominent places to put pressure on the Australian government ahead of those climate talks, the previous Australian government. You know, you don't have a, kind of a career that's kind of this kind of long linear narrative. You've got spikes just going off like earthquakes in in all sorts of directions how do you measure success what what is what is like what gives you a sense of achievement and accomplishment in a in a career like the one that you've had i honestly don't know like um i don't feel very successful you know you know i you're living in my rented a house uh in like a one-bedroom house in you know in bondi beach which is nice but like i don't own a house i don't have nice i don't have lots of nice things i don't live i feel like i get you know, not resentful, but I feel like I'm 40 years old. I should, I should have something to show for all the fun things I've done. But I guess the things I've done haven't been money earners. They've been impact driven. Um, the billboard stuff is probably one of the things I'm most proud of and it only happened last year. So that was a real fun moment for me where I was like, aha, I'm channeling my climate rage into something that everybody else is feeling too and if I can help people um, if I can help people feel like they're standing up to the government as well to do more on climate action then that's great so I've kind of built this platform to to drive change in that in that way um, so shaming the federal government in Times Square when the world's biggest billboard right before cop was incredible like we mentioned Scott Morrison before 9.45 a.m. when those billboards went up in September 2021, he wasn't going to go to COP26. Um, but at 2 p.m. he held a press conference to say he was. <laughs> wow, that's extraordinary. <laughs> it's so, like, it's like, fuck yeah, like, fuck you, I got you to go to to, climate, to, the, to the world's biggest climate talks in one of the in signature years because COP happens every year but um, not. Not one of the not 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 every year is a big year, but Glasgow is a big year, um, and he had to go there and be shamed in front of um, the rest of the world. And those photos from COP with him standing by himself is completely indicative of Australia's position in in the climate sphere. You know, that's just what I'm saying. You know, you've got a career with these kind of things that happen on any given year that for a lot of people they would literally trade a whole career <laughs> on. Um, well, right now I want people to know that I'm willing to sell out as hard as I can because I need to buy a house and in this market shaming the government to go into COP isn't extremely profitable. <laughs> Dan, it, look, man, 
<laughs> if there's anyone who should be a household name and who should be getting that kudos, it's you. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Before I wrap it up, I just want to ask you three super quick questions. Yeah. Top of the head answers. What's keeping you up at night? Climate inequality keeps me up at night. I saw an interesting documentary about uh, a rewilding project in the UK. And the guy that was running that said this incredible stat that I think about all the time. He said the, the rate of the weather is moving five kilometres, or in his case, north, but in our case, south every year. And like, wow, global heating, <laughs> that keeps me up at night. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know, in a, in a way where, you know, I've been working on the climate for at least sort of 10, 20 years and I've the conversation has shifted just immensely. It's been a paradigm shift from that time. Um, but I still, you know, can we can we catch up? Are we going to be fast enough? It's a big question. Next question yeah. is um, who else should I talk to for this podcast? Alice Fraser, comedian, is a good person to talk to. Gabby Bolt is a new voice in the comedy scene. She's good to talk to. <laughs> Last question, what's giving you hope? You know, great young people give me hope and it's such a cop-out, like, uh, but folks who work in the similar spaces that we've worked in who are operating at a high level give me hope. Um, you know, Anjali Sharma, she's a like an absolute ball terror. These future leaders coming through, you can see the rage and clarity in their eyes and that uh, that is inspiring. Dan, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Hey, no worries, man. Good um, to be with you. Where's the place where people should go to, uh, you know, you are extremely internet, there's stuff everywhere. Oh, yeah. Where's the best place to go? Um, head to irrationalfear.com. Give me your email address and I'll send you a funny podcast once a week to listen to. Irrational Fears podcast that I started 10 years ago now and we provide a platform for comedians to say something about the world and drill down on climate change. Go and get there. Um, this was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous uh, interviews, I highly recommend you dig back in. Um, Gemma Smith, Nick Robinson, Lee Tran, Kayleen Milner, Cam Webb, Lin Dang, these people all have just such amazing stories. And I reckon if you like this one, you're probably going to like them too. Let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and all those channels. Matt Levinson, just uh, look me up and let me know. I would love to hear, uh, yeah, what you think. That's it for me. I'll be back soon. I might have a story for you.